I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Rosie, Rosie, come here. Run towards me excitedly and greet me like a long-lost friend who absolutely loves me. She's thinking about it. Oh, here she comes. Hello. I love you. I haven't seen you for ages. It's been over three minutes. I've been running around. No, come right here. Rose, come here. Okay. Hello. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. What do you want? Nothing. Just to give you a little hug. Say hi. Yeah, I'm actually busy. Because there's, like, creatures over in the field over there. I'm going to run after them, and they're going to get away from me. So if I could get back to that, that would be great. All right. See you later. I love you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was it, Rose. Sorry, I'm just doing an intro. She's looking at me like, what? Actually, what do you want? Nothing is the answer. Sorry. Hey, how you doing, podcats? Let's get into the podcast, shall we? More inconsequential rambling for the hardcore at the end of the podcast. But right now, let me tell you that podcast number 51 features a conversation with one of the best and most influential guitar players of modern times. Johnny Marr. I left a good pause there. Because that was, yes, in some ways, a bit of hyperbole. But on the other hand, it's actually true. And it's quite exciting to be introducing someone for whom legendary status is actually appropriate. Johnny Marr. Our conversation was recorded in Johnny's studio space outside Manchester in November of last year, 2016. Sorry it's taken so long to get this one out. I mean, I could go into a long, boring story about why that is, but there's no real reason other than, you know, it just uh, took me a while to get round to editing the conversation and uh, now seemed the right time. But Boy, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? This time last year, more or less, 2016, when the idea that Donald Trump might become president was still just a fun joke. Anyway, the spur for my meeting with Johnny, who I had met a few times before then and uh, got to know a little bit and like very much, was the fact that Johnny was about to uh, have his book published, Set the Boy Free a memoir which came out earlier this year. And it's a uh, a very enjoyably frank account of Johnny's five years in the Smiths between 1982 and 1987. Just five years, it's so weird, isn't it? Anyway, the book also details the many musical adventures Johnny has undertaken since then, with collaborators as diverse as Talking Heads, Paul McCartney, Bernard Sumner, Chrissy Hind, Matt Johnson of the The. I mean, I thought that it was a terrific read, but I'm a sucker for music biographies. I also read, or rather listened to, TBH, Morrissey's autobiography, which came out in 2013 and was called Autobiography. And the audiobook is read by the actor David Morrissey, which is uh, entertaining. But it is very good in places. Sort of brilliant. I mean, he is a strange, maddening 
character in a lot of ways, Morrissey, isn't he? But uh, he certainly can turn a phrase when it suits him. However, the whole thing more or less grinds to a halt when it starts detailing the courtroom dispute over royalties brought by Smith's members Andy Rourke and Mike Joyce. Andy Rourke settled fairly quickly. Mike Joyce carried on fighting for what he considered to be his rightful quarter share of royalties. And that was the trial during which the judge famously branded Morrissey devious, truculent and unreliable. Now, I enjoy hearing about disputes. I love a good dispute. But this was like being cornered by a drunk guy at a party who just can't stop telling you about his divorce and what an absolute uh, ungrateful cow his wife is. I mention that only because we talk a little bit about all that stuff, me and Johnny. Uh, And Johnny Marr indeed talks about the court case in his book too, but as you might expect, the tone is quite different, and it's a lot more concise. But mainly, we talked about music. Some of the music that Johnny has been inspired by over the years, and indeed some of the music that he has helped to create. And he gives us one or two fantastic insights into how some of those songs came to be throughout the podcast. Here we go. So let's start by talking about the book. Yeah. Set the Boy Free. You've written a book. I know. About your whole life thus far. Yes. Personal life and music. Yeah, because without stating the obvious, my life life is my music. Right. But no, my life has been about being a musician from being a kid. I'm kind of defined, I'm very happy to say, by the music I've made. And because I've got to make it professionally from being very young... A lot of people will uh, know the records, and obviously if they've followed me over the years, you know, they're going to want to hear about the records, but I think there's not really much of a divide between me as a person and my life and the records I was making at that time or whatever bands I was in, because it's been my life. I realise how, how fortunate I am, but there's plenty of stuff that a lot of people won't know, because I've gone into quite a lot of detail, about not too much, but I would bore people with my own reminiscing, but there's all the teenage stuff and mm. all of that, and what led to uh, the formation of the Smiths and um, my life before that. I'm always interested in how people in that position, writing a book about their early years, how they actually just remember it. Did you keep diaries? Did you keep journals? Or did you have to talk to friends and family to try and reconstruct? Yeah, I talked to my family about a few things. I've got a really good memory, Mm -hmm. which is kind of amazing, really. But I've always had a very, very good memory. You know, there are some events in there, like, you know, ending up in a police cell and... um, I'm not really going to forget that. Well, you that, ended up, like, fencing yeah. some stolen art. Yeah, fencing or at least stolen art. Facilitating yeah. the fencing yeah, of stolen well, art. I ended up working in one shop, and this guy was coming in and being very chatty and very kind of 
gregarious. He, he ingratiated himself, or got himself involved with the shop. And it was a clothes shop, was it? Yeah, because I figured that, you know, if you needed to get money for guitar strings and cigs, my parents weren't going to give me that money. Mm. What you did was you worked in a clothes shop. That's what I thought guitarists in waiting did, right? Because I remember reading about, you know, Mark McLaren and a sex shop and my friend Billy Duffy was working in uh, Johnson's in London. So that's what I figured I'd do, you know, classic guitarist. Yeah, because you get to stand around, you meet lots of cool people, you can Make play tapes. all the music you like. Yeah, that's exactly it. But yeah, so this guy kept coming in the shop and I think I told him about a pot dealer who lived near me. You know, you could get pot off him if you sort of swapped him some, you know, bits and pieces. He was a fence, basically. Uh-huh. And it's just loose talk. Give you him know? some pointy I, I, shoes. I and been, yeah, I would have been 16, yeah. Yeah, yeah give him some stuff and he'll, he'll give you some pot. Nice. I'd like to know where I get my pot from. And then, so this one day, he just, he just put it to me. Oh, you know, I've got these uh, paintings or drawings or these sketches. Do you know I can get this guy, you know? Do you know I can get this, get this guy? So anyway, I just introduced him to this guy. And then the next thing I know, a couple of weeks later, I was playing in a crappy little rehearsal room in Ancoats in Manchester and the, the door got kicked in. These three classic kind of three burly, overweight, sweaty detectives bang, boot the door in whilst we were playing. Like from Life on Mars or something. Exactly, exactly. But they were very serious fellas and they just grabbed me, pushed me up against the wall. I still had my guitar on. Why I like telling this story is because I got busted with my guitar on. Right. And it was going clang, clang through this amp. Yeah. You know, I was like this. They've got three of them got me up against the wall and they're going through my pockets. And at that moment in time, I had no idea what it was. It could have been a couple of things, really. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, shit. And That that bloke you murdered. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I thought it was what they were going to find in my pockets. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I had some pot on me and thought it was about that. But then I realised, this is a little bit excessive. Yeah. No, it was terrifying. I was 17, I think. Pulled me down these iron stairs and put me into a cop car and then the other two guys in the band got taken off in another car and still had no idea what it was about and then sped off to this police station and I was in the cell for a couple of days and then discovered it was all to do with, like, this guy that I'd introduced to this dodgy bloke on my estate. You know, they were, they were L.S. Lowry's paintings. Right. With his match stalk men and match match stalk cats yeah, and these, dogs. Yeah, it's like, oh man, oh man. I really knew I was in deep then, you know. Found myself up in court a few months later, a few weeks later. Everyone else got sent to prison and I got let off. The judge sort of, I think he recognised that I was just an idiot kid sort of trying to hustle around really. Yeah. But it was really terrifying getting that close to going in the nick because that's not, you know, I was a little bit of a rogue and, but, you know, I wasn't hardcore. Yeah. Absolutely not, you know. And you really thought you were going away. You said goodbye to Angie then? And- oh, yeah, I had a couple of people. That was the thing. I had a couple of people come out and see me at this house I was hanging out in and saying, look, you know, there's a guy in the kitchen in, in the nick and he'll get you a job after a couple of weeks. So and you were making guy plans in, for life I wasn't. I was like, this, I was going, this does not make me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> that really brought it home to me when I've got someone trying to, saying, it's all right, yeah, I've got you a job in the library. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. God. I want a job in the library. Yeah. So that was kind of scary. I had my mum in there in the in the magistrate's court looking down at me. I was like, oh, Jesus. But, you know, my folks stood by me, which was amazing, really. You got let off, 300 quid fine. Yeah, which might as well have been 3 million quid. Right. To me at the time, or 3,000 quid. Didn't yeah, know where yeah. I was going to get that money. But then I got a job in another shop like immediately afterwards and my life kind of started again then, really. Mm. In Keith Richards' book, the bits that I enjoyed were the bits where he 
talks about the impulse to write certain songs. And he doesn't get too bogged down in technicalities. I mean, obviously, I'm a guitar player, so I could read about what strings he was using and what tunings and what guitars for days after days. But I didn't want to do that in my book. I didn't want to get too guitar magazine about it. Mm -hmm. But those were the bits that I liked, the impulse behind some of the songs that I really loved. That's the thing, though, that I think a lot of musicians find very difficult to describe and hard to recall. And that's the thing that people want to know, like... Where did that come from? How did that pop into your mind? That riff or that tune or those lyrics? Oh, good. And a lot of musicians really struggle, and I think they, they feel quite defensive even being asked that question. They're like, well, listen to the song. The song is the answer to that question. I can't talk yeah. about where it came from. Yeah. So, so it's great to have someone who's actually having a go at describing where those things come from. Well, I hope that the sense of wonder comes across. You know, this charming man felt like it came through the window. I mean, I remember the day, I remember the moment, I remember the feeling of it. And what was that day? Like, reconstruct for us that... Well, it was a spring, early summer morning, and I got out of bed, and the sun was shining through the window. It was around about 10am or something, which was early for me, I guess. And um, it was a little bit like I knew that I had some homework to do because we had our, I think, second John Peel session coming up so we were on a our wheels were going we the smiths were we weren't a big established band by then because that moment was about to make us that you know and you were aged what 18 19 i think Mm. maybe 19 and um the band's really early days of the band but we had our second john peel thing and i knew subconsciously i had some mental homework to do i had to write a couple of new songs you know but i was feeling really buoyant and it was a really had a beautiful energy in the day just from one of those nice kind of feel-good mornings i think maybe before that as well i'd been wondering what how come Aztec Camera, who are our label mates, were getting on the radio and we weren't. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have very breezy, upbeat tunes. Walk Out to Winter. That, yeah, that, and that, Oblivious yeah, and yeah. those kind of things. I'm pretty sure they were out at that time. And right. Roddy's stuff. And, and I respected Roddy because he's one of the only other people I knew who was the same age as me. And we'd met and I liked him. Unbeknownst to me, he was living about two minutes away from me at that time. And we didn't, I didn't know this for years later. Right. It was weird. Maybe he was waking up and I was like, by osmosis, getting his vibes through the window. Uh, <laughs> or you were hearing the chords to walk out to winter drifting down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was a little bit of, um, I guess, sort of pragmatism and competitive spirit going on. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't angsty. I just felt really buoyant. I was like, okay. And so the mood helped me just play that because before that, you know, the Smith stuff wasn't all doomy, but it was definitely one of the cheerier songs in our canon. Mm. And I always avoided. Up to that point, I tried to avoid writing songs in the key of G because it was so quite a sunshine chord. I had to try and avoid songs in D and songs in G for that reason. Because they seem too accessible, too up-tempo. Yeah, too... too or too, too smiley. Too straight, like some, too yellow, really. Uh-huh. <laughs> I always thought D was red and G was yellow. Uh, but maybe the combination of the sun and needing to do something that was upbeat. What are your blue chords then? Oh, A minor, C even, B minor, C sharp minor... Definitely. So leapt out of bed, picked up the acoustic and then just played that chord sequence that became this charming man. Bang. I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I just pressed record straight away and then um, had this TIAC cassette machine that you could overdub on. A little four-track thing. You no, know, it was actually, it's around the corner there. I think it's a, just a two-track. It's a cassette and then you can overdub on it. Ah. It wasn't like, didn't have any faders or it didn't look like a porter studio. Right. There wasn't port studios then. Or if there were, they weren't, you know, as we know them now. But anyway, no, it was a cassette machine that you could overdub on. And then I just played the top line straight away, just on, that was it, bang. The whole song just went out. Hmm. I thought, oh, this sounds really good. 
it seemed to come through the window. So aside from the thinking, oh, how's that camera doing it? There was no kind of um, plan or uh, contrivance. And you tell a story in the book about getting the hand-in-glove riff. Yeah, well, I was at my parents' house one Sunday evening. I'd moved out by there, down the road, and um, I went to visit them, and Angie was with me. She would have been about 17. Something. Angie, your girlfriend at the time, now your wife? Yeah, yeah. and um, we just nipped round to see my folks one Sunday, and my little brother, and there was a, I'd left a pretty crappy acoustic guitar there, I was sitting around bored and I started playing this riff. I mean, hang on. Okay, this is a much posher guitar. I'm not sure it's in tune. So I was play I was absent-mindedly playing this riff. So that's kind of like chic, mm -hmm. really. Sort of now Rogers kind of thing. You Those know, little like, choppy chords. Yeah. So I was playing hand in glove like that. I thought, oh, right, I'm really onto something. And I had nothing to record it on. I was like, shit, what am I gonna do? I was sort of leaping around. I knew I wouldn't remember it in the right way. So I said, Angie had just taken me around to Morris's. I'd only, me and Morris had only known each other a few months by this time, if that. You gotta take me around to Morris's. He's got a tape recorder. So we got in the car with the guitar and we drove the sort of 20 minutes drive from Widdenshaw to Old Trafford. Stretford, where Morrissey lived, and in the car all the time, so I wouldn't forget it. I was going. <laughs> Angie always leaves me to it, but as she was driving, now she loves Iggy Pop, always has done, always will, and um, she just said, uh, "Make it sound like Iggy." So I'm in the front seat of the car, like holding this thing. I'm just not stopping, constantly playing it, so I won't forget it, won't change the vibe. It's really easy to develop something. I suppose it's the same in anything, but you can overdevelop it and it becomes something else and you lose the original inspiration and idea. And she, so she said, make it sound like Iggy, so I just went. <laughs> like, give me danger. So I took this kind of clipped riff and I sort of Iggy there, but James Williamson did it. I went. And then, then that just came out. That kind of happened. I don't know how that happened. So I, I just then was really onto something, right? Don't lose that. Then I got to Morris's house and prayed it was one of the rare times when he hadn't left the house. Uh huh. And they opened the door and I was there going, hey, Moss, 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 hey, get, have you got a tape recorder? He ran up the stairs and got his tape recorder and I just went in the hallway and I put the track down. So it was like a bit of human sampling. And then what was the process for him thereafter? We maybe have even been together about eight or nine months then because the other two guys, Mike and Andy, were in the band. So... That was on the Sunday, so on the Monday, we would have been getting together. We were always getting together and rehearsing. And I showed the guys the riffs and we worked it up instrumentally. And he arrived shortly afterwards and he just sang Hand in Glove on top of it. Right, so he just turned up with a sheaf of lyrics. Yeah, that's the way it always was until we were big enough to be doing it in studios. But yeah. that was the process. I would give him the music. So he had been sitting with that tape for a few days. Oh, yeah, I mean, if that... The last stuff, he'd just do it in 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. 
I used to come up with songs really quickly and he used to come up with the words and the melodies and his vocals really quickly, you know. What was it like for you then hearing what he had done? I was astounded. That was my favourite out of... It was maybe song seven, song nine or something that we'd written. The best ones were the latest ones, which is the best way to be. Mm-hmm. Fourth song we wrote, I think, was What Difference Does It Make? And it was like, right, this is the best one. The newest is the best one. And then Say Hand in Glove, that one was like, well, this is definitely the best one, and it's the newest. Mm. Uh, and then you write some more that you really love. But in the case, to answer your question, I was astounded because I thought the lyrics were kind of a manifesto for us. I thought us and the audience, you can read, the audience could read into those lyrics, you know. It's not like any other love, this one's different because it's us. You know, everything depends upon how near you stand to me. It was just like a real a declaration. It felt like a declaration of our band, of our friendship, of the band's relationship with our audience, all five of them. <laughs> you know. And would you laugh at lines like the sun shines out from our behinds? And oh, like yeah, 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 yeah. Even before that, on some of the very early songs when it was just me and him, you know, Handsome Devil, I think. Let me get my hands on your mammary glands. Yeah. What? Yeah, it was amazing. And you wouldn't... um... Right the way through the band, it was amazing. Uh Uh-huh. Did you ask him questions about those words and things, or did you just leave each other to it? Yeah, I mean, it was a a matter of unspoken encouragement. He knew that I thought he was utterly brilliant and whatever he was going to do was going to be amazing, and I felt exactly the same way. We were so tight and so close... We didn't need to say those things. He was yeah. like five years older than you, isn't he? Like I think that. so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, five years older, four years. It's quite a, quite a lot when you're young. It is a lot, right. So he's a sort of 23-year-old guy, and do you think there was any sense that you were a little bit deferential towards him for that reason, that he was your senior in age? No, it was... Actually, if you ask anyone who was around, they'd say that the role was more that I was this little hyper run-around protector of everybody. Mm. I was a very resourceful person, had to be. Trying to find rehearsal rooms, trying to find other band members, trying to get demos, studios. And then that just is one tiny step away from just being very protective in a way. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when we got bigger and bigger, those, that role and those responsibilities became crazy big, you know. Because my heroes, Andrew Oldham and even Brian Jones, I think, Maybe I was attracted to them because I saw something that I related to. Andrew Oldham, the Stones manager. Manager, yeah. yeah. This idea of the hustly, kind of resourceful, making stuff happen. Right, come on, let's, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And being very energetic. And put, How did you know about Andrew Oldham then? You'd read about him? and Yeah, I'd read about him, yeah. I was such a Stones freak. And back then, in the late 70s, early 80s, you didn't have Waterstones with a huge, big section on Justin Bieber. Yeah. or Adele, you know, you, I know, rock books just didn't really... Some of them existed, but they didn't... There wasn't a culture of it. So when I, I used to come across old magazines and uh, newspapers that had the stones in, and I used to collect bits of Andrew Oldham's interviews and things about Andrew Oldham and Brian Jones, it was really unusual in those days to do that, especially when all your mates were, like, guys on the estate where it was, like, hopping around in port by hats to madness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... Andrew Oldham was a really big influence on me. The hustler kind of thing, you know, hmm. making things happen. So that's how I went and knocked on doors and blood studio time. And um, so... So it was the process of creating a band and getting that band to 
connect with people that you were excited about as much as actually playing the music? I wasn't as, as excited about as playing the music because playing the music was magic to me and being a guitar player, but... I f- you liked the I, project, though. It's the only way I was going to get a band together, like, be that. Yeah. And it suited my personality and I had the enthusiasm for it. Yeah. You know, I used to think that Manchester was Broadway. Mm-hmm. It was really romantic. I was putting my band together. I love Libra and Stoller. And I used to think that I was like, you know, getting together this male Shangri-Las on my new Rolling Stones, you know. What were you imagining? What were your fantasies about in those days? Do you remember? Like, what's going to happen to this band? Making a record, a seven-inch single with a navy blue label on it. That was... (laughs) That's very specific. That was, was, uh, yeah, with Morrissey and Mara in the brackets. Right. Yeah, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. Mm -hmm. It was the Holy Grail for me. Because I loved all the Decca singles that I had. All the Stone singles were on Decca, so that's why it was navy blue, I guess. Mm-hmm. With silver writing? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, So what was that first single? That was Hand in Glove. That's Hand in Glove, yeah. yeah. So that was amazing. So one, once I had that in my hands, stood on the, the approach of Piccadilly train station when I went to get the box of them that had been sent from Rough Trade, I was in freeze frame and the rest of the world was kind of rushing around me like one of those kind of moments on a TV film. You know? Yeah, yeah. And just stood there, like, gazing at it. Oh, my God. And so did that just fill you with excitement about, oh, my God, this is happening, we can do this? Well, by then, other things around the band had really taken on a massive momentum. Mm-hmm. You know, we had Joe, our manager. He was this amazing guy. He was, seemed, not, I won't say ancient, but he was a guy in his mid to late 30s. Mm-hmm. He and I were really close, and so there was him before. There was, there was me and Angie and Joe before I met Morrissey. And uh, he'd never managed a band before or anything. He was just my older mate who ran a couple of clothes shops. And, um, you know, he decided his life was going to be it. He'd bought into it for his own life and he was working on it. So I had this great, really wise, fantastic guy with me. Morris was, you know, he's got his side of, you know, why he was doing it, ambition and as, you know, romantic and um, poetic as I can be about it, he could say the same. I don't know whether he would. So by the time that moment came out to answer your question, wheels were already turning, you know. But that was, let me think. No, we hadn't done a John Peel session there. It was really early that when we got Hand in Glove done, yeah. Really early. Yeah, we'd only done about seven gigs. So yeah, it was a very, very important early moment. But I felt things were happening just because we were writing other songs. I just felt I had an amazing partner in Morrissey. I had an amazing partner with Joe. It was starting to be a little bit of a team and we were all big dreamers and very capable, talented people. Joe was incredibly talented. Morris was incredibly talented. Angie's a very talented person. And so, so did you feel that you were all on the same page? Because, I mean, Morrissey, have you read his book? No. Actually, for my money, some of my favourite parts of that book are the early parts when he's writing about his childhood. Yeah, I believe that they're really good. I will get round to it. People yeah. think I'm being weird when no, I say you're not, no. But you're not but blanking just... it. Right, OK. He writes very well about his early years. But it is clear pretty early on that you're dealing with quite an unusual person. Sure. And that must have been clear to you. And were you thinking, were you focused just on what was good about that because it fed into the music you were making? Or were there little seeds of like, oh, this guy might be quite hard to deal with sometimes and that might be a problem for the band going forward? Eventually that, mm. was, that would happen. But no, it was like the need and the idealism and the sort of romanticism and desperation, mm-hmm. truth be told, that I had, he had the same. And that was really unusual to meet someone else who... Because, sure, sure, the 
loads of other musicians and I knew other musicians and stuff, but I didn't know anyone else who was a sort of intense about it all as me. And I don't just mean like ambitious or intense about getting famous or anything like that. I really, you know, was kind of bordering on mystical about what pop culture was and what a record could do. And for instance, we talked about listening to a scratchy old record with the lights off on your own and hearing the crackles. I mean, that to me was like, you're the only person on this planet that does that <laughs> besides me. Yeah, you had that, you knew how important it could be to people. And yeah. you knew what people could get from it when you connect with music in that way. As you say, it fills you with all sorts of amazing positive things, hope being one of them, and excitement, and which never really goes away no matter how old you get. And so, yeah, it must have been very exciting for you to know that you had the wherewithal you and Morrissey, to actually supply that to people in a new form. Yeah, but as well as, that's true, but in front of that, in my mind, that's all great, but that's almost as a byproduct of making something great. That's the thing. Oh, my God, you're really like, come on, everybody, really loud, and you're like six. I'd say my mum and dad jiving in this little room, like something in me that, well, how do I make, how do I do that? How do I do that? It's what I'm always looking for. How do I do that? And of course, you want to be in a band. You want people to think you're cool. You want to wear good clothes. You, want, you know, I didn't really like playing gigs. I didn't like touring until my late thirties, early forties. So for me, it was always about making that music. Being in the studio. It wasn't the the uh, the cheering of the crowd. Of course, I wanted people to think you know I look good. And what was I it was about cool. touring that you didn't enjoy? It took me away from making records. And I never really took care of myself, you know, I didn't eat and, um, I, you know, I didn't sleep very much. I was sort of... Yeah, especially when you're younger and you're all jazzed and excited about doing this or that, actually looking after... I mean, it's hard enough looking after yourself at any point in your life, isn't it? But when you're... Yeah, and I'm not talking about drugs or, what you know, the obvious reductive things, staying up late, drinking Jack Daniels or doing loads of blow and all of that, which, you know, I did, I did that. But I'm not talking about that. Just, I knew this at the time that at any point when I'd have finished a record... If the record company or the manager or what, another member of the band had said, tomorrow we start a new one, I would have just been delirious. Yeah, great. Great. But the reason I bring it up is because I now know how unusual that is. Because it's kind of in reverse. Most, nearly every musician I know. They live for playing well, live. Especially when they were young. It's like you want to get out and play your songs on the stage. And in a way, it was a little bit of a blind spot of mine, really. And it was only really with... with uh, the healers that I suddenly had to reconcile, right, what am I going to do as a frontman here? That I really analysed it and went, oh, right, this is really quite a great scenario. I don't mean the praise and the adulation. I mean, the, what a gig is, the exchange of energy and the volume and being surrounded by all that electricity and, and the, the look on the faces of the audience, really, and that connection with the audience, you know. So there wasn't a sense of you... I didn't need the adulation from 2,000 people in a room. I really didn't. Right. I wanted other musicians and fans and my mates. In this order, the band, my mates, fans, other musicians. You wanted them to get excited. I wanted them to think what I was doing was really, really good. The press, right down the bottom of the list. Uh They were there, but right down the bottom. That must have started coming fairly quickly, though. I mean, people were excited about the band and they were... Everyone knew who they were, and they were quite divisive, though. It was like, kind of, are you for or against? It was a very definite camp i remember when i was young and you guys were putting out records it was the hard guys would listen to the smiths 
And really? they were well it was when I say hard it was like the, they were the cool serious guys. guys. Yeah, they were they they were drain pipes, winkle pickers, bird's nest hair. Yeah. They were probably into Jesus and Mary chain as well. The the London indie kids. Cool. I wasn't a London indie kid. I was me and Joe were like the sort of pop twats. You were young though, weren't you? You would have been what, ten or eleven or something? No, a little bit older than that. Thirteen, fourteen. Oh yeah. But we were listening to Thomas Dolby and Thompson Twins and things like that and and Bowie as well. But there was something about the Smiths that was a bit more serious, a bit more next level. And I wasn't ready for that. Hatful of Hollow was the thing that changed it for me. Oh, that's pretty Um, early on. I got it after the fact, well, a few years after it had come out. What was the deal with that record? It was like... I asked the same question at the time. Yeah. But I'm glad it came out. It was Morris's idea and we'd amassed enough kind of B-sides because we always put two songs on the 12 inch of the, of the each single. So we had a couple of B-sides knocking around and primarily it was, it was because the John Peel sessions were so good and represented the band. So there was different songs that weren't on the first album that were in our uh, set and in our repertoire. We wanted to document, really. And I didn't see it coming and Morrissey put the record together and I thought it was fantastic and it really did the right thing. It represented the band. It was great. Some of the versions on that record are better than the official versions or the other versions or whatever. Mm. So that's what happened with that. It was his projects and it was really, really good. Yeah, I found it um, much more accessible. Yeah, well, we, you know, we uh, gatecrashed the mainstream pretty quickly. I, I liked that we got into the uh, the mainstream for a number of reasons. Obviously, it's great, you know. Hey, you success. How about you know try that on? But um, but also because we because we were sort of next level. I understood that, like, because when I was a little kid, you knew watching Top of the Pops when a band like Free came on doing Wishing Well and My Brother Jake. Mm-hmm. And if you saw one of those bands on TV, they were like, you'd go, oh God, they look like they stay up late and do naughty things and mm-hmm. then you've got the bands like Blondie and I really loved when a band who had sort of interesting ideas and let's say subversive gate crashed the mainstream I thought that was way better than them just being cool in an indie ghetto and I still do uh, that's one of the things I think pop is that makes pop so fantastic as a mainstream art form mm. interesting people can infiltrate the suburbs and all those things I mean you know, you know when Bowie's the absolute king of it yeah. Break into the mundane, straight world with ideas about gender and sexuality and... Art and... Lifestyle. Avant-garde art ideas. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, they, the 80s were great for that, though, weren't they? It was, they're showing a lot of those old Top of the Pops programmes on uh, BBC4 at the moment. Yeah. Uh, do you ever watch any of those? I see some of... I always end up fast-forwarding it because it's just... Yes. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I very rarely stay on them for more than four minutes, honestly. Yeah. I'm uh, looking out for the gem. Well, it's quite fun if you don't fast-forward sometimes. Like, if you force yourself to watch the ones that you would have walked out of the room for back when they went out first time. Yeah. You think, oh... And sometimes you think, okay, I get it now. Like with some of the stuff that you just thought, no, not going there. When I was little, I didn't understand the point of soul or R&B. You know, it's like, well, this isn't pop music. I just had a very childish grasp of pop. and um, Oh, yeah. And so I remember thinking, like there was a song called Mama Used to Say by Junior. Junior, yeah, Yeah. Junior Giscombe, yeah. 
And I just thought it was comical at the time. And Mama used to say, and I used to do impressions of it. But it's brilliant. It's a great song. And, and he does a great performance of it. And all these songs, Ashford and Simpson, and all these kinds of things that, that I didn't get at the time. Now I see them sandwiched between the songs that I did get, Madness and uh, whatever else like that that, that yeah. I was into, Adam and the Ants. I see them there on top of the pops. And um, I think, yeah, well, this is great. I totally get it now. Well, that's pop, isn't it? Yeah. I saw the clip of Whitney Houston singing I Want to Dance with Somebody uh-huh. on Top of the Pops. And I've been in that studio. It's only any good for miming, yeah. if you're lucky, right? And she's singing live, and she's doing the American classic showbiz. It's in, it very much in the tradition of bringing it as a soul performer. She's not standing there like the Cocktail Twins or us or whatever. She's on her own, no band, and she's selling it. It was never my kind of thing, really, but I saw that performance, and you think... Well done. Yeah. It's incredible. Probably got off a flight that morning, jet lagged, whatever, bang, switches it on. And um, yeah, so actually, that's, that's the thing that struck me. There's that performance, that... the singing's unbelievable, you know, and it's yeah. so bang on and uh, it's so controlled. And it is, it's in the tradition of Sam and obviously Aretha Franklin, but Sam and Dave, it's that classic American professional thing that great soul singers do. Mm. Really amazing performance, but at the time I was like smoking a cig with the sound down going, what's this shit? But gatecrashing the mainstream, that's how I felt. So when we did that, even though I was just a kid, I knew what we were doing and I knew how good our frontman was. But when we were on top of the pops for the first time, first thing I noticed was our record, This Charming Man, sounds really exciting. It's quite funny because you've got all of these people who are told to dance. You know, they're trying to do some... I don't know what kind of dance it is they're trying to do, but it was, it was very odd. Um, but I thought, wow, how must we be coming over on the TV right now as in our uh, weird clothes and the singer swinging these gladiola around? And Presumably he'd been doing that at live shows. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. the very next thing that I thought at that moment was, oh, no... At gigs, the floors get very, very slippy. This is being transmitted live. Do not move a muscle. Stand still. Because all I could think about was that I was going to slide off the stage on national television. <laughs> on some My uh, TV crushed gladiola. Yeah, because those stages used to get really slippy. And I used to wear these moccasin kind of slippers things because yeah. I couldn't get the real ones. Was there, there must have been a point where you had just been rehearsing and then suddenly you play a gig. Was his stage presence or present and correct from day one of playing live? Day two, it's very second show. Because mm. the first show we were told by uh, the band we were opening for, Blue Rondo a la Turk, that we weren't allowed to move anything, including the mic stand. So that first gig, we only did four songs. It was quite restrictive. But yeah, I realised then, right, wow, OK. But I, exp- I wasn't that surprised because we were really tight as friends from you were really on a mission from the moment we met so I just assumed that he'd be brilliant and he assumed I would Mm -hmm. and that makes you brilliant that gives you confidence as well we're halfway through the podcast I think it's going really great the conversation's flowing like it would between a geezer and his mate alright mate hello geezer I'm pleased to see you There's so much chemistry, it's like a science lab of talking I'm interested in what you said Thank you There's fun chat and there's deep chat, it's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking Well, William, it was really nothing, I suppose, 
is not a million miles away from this charming man. With William, it was really nothing. That was part of the time when we moved down to London to be closer to the record company and be pop stars. We found out, I found out, that we could be pop stars and stay in Manchester. But there was a, a period, I guess, late 83, 84, when we moved to London. It was great, it was fantastic, great for me. I had my own flat for the first time, me and Angie, and lived in Earl's Court, and I was banging all these songs out. There was like a run of hits, Heaven Knows, and Hand in Glove with Sandy Shaw, and, um, and then we come to write a few more. We were always gigging. See, nowadays when, you, when bands of a certain size anyway go out and tour and everything, now it is very much like a campaign. I hate that word, but it's an appropriate word. And we were pretty much like the, the 70s bands in that regard. This was, you know, where we were, we were doing stuff, but we, were always, we always had gigs on. Sure, you'd have a tour and you'd book it and it'd have a string of dates on a, on a poster, but we always seemed to be never too far away from a two-week Irish tour or a 10-date run in Scotland. Or There's always be gigs on the horizon, you know, which was great for us as musicians and as a band. We had this van for the longest time that Joe had financed, no windows in it in the back. We were coming back from Hammersmith Odeon going to the Free Trade Hall or vice versa, I can't remember now. So even though we were playing these big gigs, we were still on a mattress in the back of a van. Uh -huh. So mank and so indie. And I just, I was sat on the back and bouncing around and I think the momentum of, um, and it's this guitar, the one I was picking up over in there. As I say, because we were bobbing around in the back of the car, I just started playing something fast. I was going... I think that. To me, maybe because I've got this associative memory of it, but it's just like being on a train or there's a rush to it. It's wonderful, the feeling of movement. Movement. And, and it gives you a real um, sense of excitement, doesn't it, a lot of the time? It's a bit out of tune, that guitar. I should have tuned it before I started playing on your podcast, but whatever. It's rock and right to me. Yeah, it has that sense of momentum. Some songs come out of the ether, mm -hmm. as that did, and then some other songs, if you're lucky, you get a good idea before you even pick the instrument up. A tune in your head? Yeah, yeah, and, or a concept or an approach. Meet Murder, for instance, was, uh, I had a remit for that song because I had the title first. And anyone who knows the song will know it's, it's essentially, it's a, it's a horror soundtrack for an animal, essentially, but... I had to apply myself to come up with the appropriate atmosphere. And that's why it has that little piano. Because that was conceptualised, because I, I got myself in the mood, I put guitar in this opening tune, and I got myself in the mood to feel doom. Uh, but I still wanted it to be listenable. So when I, I just I try to stay in that space, occupy that space, I could talk about it because it worked. They don't always work. And then the very, very first thing I did was put that piano on top of it because... I was like, okay, well, what do horror films do? Well, they often have this very childlike, plaintive motive over the top to suggest the threat to innocence, I think, is what that is saying to you. And it worked. That was going on before we even had those incredible sound effects of the abattoir on top and the machines going and all the slaughter and everything and before even the lyrics had gone on there. So... It was doomy, but it was something you could stand hearing again. Mm -hmm. And you talk in a similar sort of way about last night I dreamt somebody loved me. Were you listening to Low? Yeah. This is Low by David Bowie. I was trying to, yeah, I was, in my way, I was trying to do 
my version of side two of low but it ended up sounding like i guess it does sound like the industrial north i'm really happy about that as opposed to sounding like berlin it sounds more like if david bowie had uh, recorded low on coronation street uh-huh. which is quite appropriate i think as everyone has already said you know great songs happen usually happen very quickly some stuff you have to really apply yourself and that's really satisfying because that's a craft so when you apply yourself and it works, it's very gratifying. But for a long time, from before the first Smiths album, just as the band formed, I had these kind of very Joni Mitchell chords that went. So, um, and what's and that, so, is that some weird sort of jazz tuning or yeah, something? Yeah, and I just was like, what the hell is that? And so when it came time to do the second album, or after the first album, I was really determined to, put, to make a song out of it. And then I remember one day being stood up in some studio somewhere, and I, I was probably just, you know, really hyped up, and I just went... <laughs> That just happened, that bit. Um, and this was something that I had from being in my bedroom at home. So that, I just locked them together and it was one of those days where these different ideas I'd had from over a couple of years all just came together in Headmaster Ritual. Mm. That one particular, I never played to the band until I turned it into a song because I was embarrassed because it sounded like so Johnny Mitchell. Uh-huh. I thought it was a bit uncool. Uh, but when we just put it through the band's filter, it just became us, really. Yeah. In the Smiths, every demo I made turned into a Smith song within days. I'd make a demo and three days later it was a song. Yeah. <laughs> Which is amazing. Very satisfying. Yeah. But we were very industrious as well. I drink your You and I, when we first met, I remember we had a long chat about the dynamics of the double act and the stresses and strains that come with that relationship. That's right. Um, operating, obviously, in, uh, in very different worlds, you and I. But um, yeah. I think there are so many things that are universal. I've talked to so many of my friends who are parts of double acts, either musical or comedic. And the same stories and the same stresses and anxieties keep coming up over and over again and there's always i think a moment when you make a transition from being school buddies or buddies who are bonded by the project as it were yeah to having to deal with being in business and earning a living and this is your life now you don't have any other side jobs it's this yeah and that brings with it a load of pressures and tensions that before you were barely aware of, it brings those all to the surface. Mm. And there's usually a moment where you have a conversation that turns into an argument or it's just a very loaded conversation and you can't really ever go back. And it doesn't necessarily ruin it, but it's like, oh, I've... No, I think it was, in my case, with me and Morris's relationship, you mean, no, it was more gradual. I think that we're probably both very willful people 
And in our case, we had a pretty strong with sense of long-term fate. Mm-hmm. If you were, without getting too esoteric about it, I think what happened with us was things went really right in an amazing way in terms of you know our success. And then probably how he saw his future and how I saw mine were different. And one of us was going to have to really compromise that sense of your own destiny. And I wasn't prepared to do that, and I don't think he was. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, speaking personally, I wasn't going to just be someone's guitarist for the rest of my life. I got known for being in that fairly archetypal situation which was great. But I'm not like Peter Buck, and I'm not like The Edge, and I'm not like Keith Richards, as much as I revere and love those people, and I'm friends with pretty much all of them. But that came as a surprise to everybody, because that's who I appear to be exactly like. I absolutely see the value in security and that family thing of a band, and I see all the pluses, but it's not for me. I don't think I ever, ever was going to stay in a band for 40 years or 30 years. Right. Ever. And that came as a surprise to Morrissey, did it? Um, no, I think what I'm saying is I can't really speak for how he sees himself, but I would say that he was always destined to be a solo artist anyway. Right, OK. I would say so, and I would say that I was destined to be a solo artist and someone who collaborated with lots and lots of other people. He... Because my MO is, is, as people now know, I don't mean to flatter myself, but it is more like the way Brian Eno operates, or, or indeed Nile Rogers, and it's one of the things throughout the 80s that made me relate to Nile Rogers. Mm-hmm. I like doing different things. You like doing different things, being introduced to different ways of thinking and working and meeting different people. Yeah. And, yeah. And I don't, really don't want to be the same musician or the same person in five years' time from now. Mm. So I think what I'm trying to say is we, we got what we wanted, but because we got our success and we became that archetypal indie band really quick, you go, right, okay, and now's the next bit. Absolutely. But you made the mistake of being in one of those bands, and Frank Black would be able to relate, I would imagine, of mean, they, they meant so much to people while they were together that they remained locked in, in people's heads in that way, and people didn't really want anything else. Some of those fans, some of those hardcore yeah. Pixies fans and Smiths fans, and there's, you know, there's a certain type of band that inspires rabid, hardline, fundamentalist, you're defined by it. Fandoms, yeah. And, but, um, and they find it very difficult to embrace change yeah. and for the band to stop and for people to move on, and they kind of hold it against those people. That's true, and, yeah, and it becomes the press narrative and it becomes mythology and then it becomes accepted as fact. But I know better. There was no way I was not going to make a, a record that sound, sounds like Dusk by the, the... I couldn't do that with the Smiths. You know, I mean, maybe I would have been out of work on the, on movies like I do now. That sort of I could see that as happening, but oh, it break my heart to not have been able to do a song like Dashboard by Modest Mouse or many other sort of songs that I've done. And to play on that Talking Heads album, yeah, yeah, but which that, was the first thing you did after the band split, more or less. Wasn't yeah, it? it was. It was the very first thing I did after the band split. Yeah, it, it all makes sense to me, but that's not to say it wasn't really painful. It, obviously really, yeah. really, really painful and, and also difficult and people have made it very difficult because of that narrative but I'm totally cool with it as long as you know what the truth is inside yeah, yeah, yeah then, you know that other stuff you talked about is part of being you know hey, I feel lucky and it's hard to talk about those things 
when you're in that situation, when, when you do realize that it's time to, for things to change, and especially if you're 23, mm. I would think. Morrissey says in his book that he met you years later, I think before the whole court case, or maybe just before it. Yeah. And he says how nice it was to see you, having not seen you for a while. Sure. But he feels like he wants to know why you split the band up. He's like... Well, he should just buy my book then. Yeah. <laughs> but he, do, he knows he was there. No, but he says, he says, like, oh, I asked Johnny, and Johnny says, well, you should know. And, and he said, no, I never knew. Oh. So do you feel like... Well, you... that, he's just saying that in his right, book. Right. Everybody around knows what went on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you are, um, compared to Morrissey, very economical when you come to the court case. One of the great things about your book is that it, it, it really is pacey. It zips along. Good. Morrissey, unfortunately, as well as he writes, and he does write very well, and there's lots of great, interesting stuff in his book, but there are passages where he's clearly determined to settle scores and he can't let certain things go and he wants to set down all his feelings in very great detail. Mm. So the court case with Mike Joyce goes on for nearly 50 pages or something. I believe so. I listened to the audio book, read by David Morrissey, incidentally. Wow. <laughs> so you can get Andrew Marr to do yours. Right. And that whole court case is like an hour and a half it takes to oh listen to that whole thing. And he goes back over certain points. And there's much about it that you really feel his indignation and his sense of injustice. And it is a horrible situation that you guys were in. But by the end of his extended rant, you think, mate, I can sort of understand why it went that way. Well, it's interesting to me now because you've read his account of the court case, obviously, and you've read mine. Yeah. We're both very, very different people, as everybody knows, and I think I've spent four or five pages or something. Mm. We're not talking about two different things, though, are we? Do you know what I mean? Like, you've read both accounts. I think what I'm asking you is, they don't sound like two different court cases, though, do they? It's just two different people. It's two different people. It's one person who seems to be unable not to take everything deeply personally. And that is not just the way that he's being treated by the lawyers and the judge, but also you. He feels like, why didn't you, Johnny Marr, say what I wanted you to say and um, stand up for me in the way that I wanted you to stand up for me. Why did you... Well, I could say the same, though, but I don't. And in, but in, in your book, you know, you, you talk about the fact that it's just an impossibly sad situation to find yourself in. That's right. And, of course, that's the logical, sort of humane yeah, way of Yeah, but it. also I own it as well. I'm not so diplomatic that I'm going, oh, I really understand it. I'm, I resent it. Yeah, yeah. I think that I wanted to make sure that that came across. I wasn't just going to be so vanilla about it that it was like, oh, okay, these things happen. Because I really resented it at the time, and I resent, I resent it now. I'm not carrying it around. I don't, I don't really feel like settling scores anyway. You, no. you know, with or without an autobiography, I'm just not that kind of person. But when I've been wronged, those people are persona non grata in my world, just like anybody else. I'm not that nice. You know, I, I can bite back. I guess I, for him, he was singled out for that. He can't... But I st- do you know in my book, I stand up for him on that? Absolutely you do. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you totally know, I, do. I, I talk about what, uh, exactly what happened and how he was stitched up. Mm by Mike's lawyer, with a phrase. Well, as we know, he bears more grudges than lonely high court judges. So he says, yeah, well... 
Um, we all love our things, don't we? I mean, that whole court case and that whole, sorry, chapter came about because you guys didn't nail everything down, mm. didn't make everything absolutely explicit, even though you felt that that conversation had been had. Yeah. Do you ever think, like, it would be easier just to do what bands like, I think, Radiohead and, and possibly Coldplay and people like that, and just do an equal split, regardless of who is actually putting in more hours, more emotional and physical effort, so you don't get into situations like that. It, it is easier, yeah, it is, but the Smiths weren't that, that kind of band. We didn't know each other when we came together. I was, like, the central person. I went and enlisted Morrissey, and then I enlisted Andy and enlisted Mike, so I, I do say my role in the band was, like, the centre of this wheel, really, you know. It depends on the band, Adam, really, because that equal arrangement, that wouldn't have been right in Kraftwerk. And it wouldn't have been right in the Kinks either. You don't expect that all the members of the Kinks are equal. And the Smiths were the same. We were more like that. That's the way it operated, really. Mm. And it was just a whole mess, really, with the Smiths because we didn't have a manager all the time. We were big. Mm-hmm. You know, it was ridiculous, you know. And that really was, you know... Look, you know, when we talk about... Don't mean to be, you know, too cosmic about things or philosophical, but... Cosmic it up. Come okay, on. here we go. I'm going in there, but... I do believe that in life, especially in relationships, if they're not right, eventually, events have a way of conspiring to make things happen. That isn't actually very cosmic. That, to me, is just practical. And us not having a manager was one of the factors that made me not be able to be in the group anymore because I don't know anyone who could say that one of the biggest, most successful guitar bands in the world should be managed by their 23-year-old guitar player. And that was the situation you found yourself in? Absolutely, yeah. So I had to leave. And that happened because you guys disagreed over the management uh, style yeah, as it manager, was? manager, yeah, yeah, yeah. The band needed a manager and we kept getting managers and they were just fired and they weren't right. And when I was finding, when I went to get Andy in the band, when I enlisted Mike, through, he came in the shop and I, we got to a club and I went and met him and checked him out and he and I met up and then we auditioned him and before that when I found Joe as a manager and then I went to hustle the rehearsal time at Decibel to make our first demo I could do that but tax laws getting us on a massive American tour you know four or five years later that's a different deal that's beyond my resources and, and it, be who I needed to be and well, be exactly. a 23 year old kid and or be creative and, and be yeah, be a human being you know and, and yeah. be me who I was expected to be be the guitar player and come up with the tunes and all of that. I'm not going to be firing people. I was sick of it. Meetings with accountants over tax laws I didn't understand. I'd already had a record where it got stopped and injuncted whilst I was two-thirds of the way through making it, which was The Queen is Dead, by a lawyer I couldn't get along with. I was 22, man. Mm. That's ridiculous. And what was that? That, that That was just to do with the fact that we tried to... Oh, you were switching. We tried to... Get off rough trade. Right, right, right. So who's supposed to... I'm not going to look after that stuff, you know. Yeah, man. I, I just wanted to be a great, in a great, great band. I just thought, well, this, I just don't see this as being part of my future. I just can't... And it broke my heart, you know. Absolutely broke my heart. That's my band. I formed the band and everything. But this is what it is. I can't do this. You know, tour managers coming and going and all of that. But I don't want, even in this conversation, for it to be a big moan. Because... I was careful not to just bitch and moan, you know, because... Yeah, which you so, don't do. Well, no, but, and I think, but I think you can still see, I, I try and be straight up about things, 
but without it just being a sort of moan fest because who wants to read that especially about a band you love and also about a musician you like because I feel really fortunate and I like working and I'm a, just get on with stuff you know so I'm not going to sit here and bitch and moan about it but, see, but they, they were the difficulties and that's why the band split mm. but as I say you know events have a way of conspiring to make things happen if they're not meant to be which is a little bit cosmic but not that much cosmic for me was it with talking heads yeah doing the last album naked yeah and you really added something to that record that was not in any way like anything talking heads fans had heard before on talking heads records but it was great and it worked thanks and it also pointed away to some of david burns best solo stuff for my money anyway yeah um, i think that was the start of him finding his his own direction yeah because nothing but flowers that sounds almost like uh, african yeah South african it's almost like half cajun half african really it's mm-hmm. very very weird that was an amazing experience but then you turned up and you found yourself in in another dynamic your band had just broken up but they were close to coming to the end of their run as well yeah so was that weird did, did you find yourself going from one stressful situation to another there was tensions with talking heads there was definitely tensions that I recognised. I didn't think they were going to be splitting up. To be honest, when I was working with David and then I'd be with Chris and Tina and then Jerry, everything was cool, but there was an energy in the room when they all got together that was quite tense. Except when we were playing, when we cut the track Ruby Deer. In some bands, they're never not tense unless they're playing. That's the sort of background. There's this frisson behind the scenes. There's sort of unspoken stuff and there's... there's a wacky you know but uh, Talking Heads was like that there was a little bit of stress there but when we started to play it was all it all melted away mm. which is great so I, I remember that experience as being really great and I was just you know again I was a kid like oh my god I'm playing with Talking Heads you know and they cut Ruby Deer because of, of, of me I was there they were waiting for me to get there to do that track so I was incredibly flattered and it was fantastic but yeah after the Smith split I had no idea what was going to happen you know, I didn't leave thinking I was going to form another band or I was going to join the Pretenders or anything like that. But I just knew I was going to play the guitar, you know, like I've always done. Mm. And, uh, and then I ended up joining my favourite bands and working with my favourite people, which I never took for granted, but I just rolled my sleeves up and really, really got to work, you know. Because, say, with the, the, for example, those records were really hard work. Long 14-hour, 15-hour days of lots of furred brows and lots of this isn't working. We need to, we've cut this track wrong. We've been working on it for five days. And see, the Smiths was different. We, just, we were just flying off the seat of our pants and everything works. But if you listen to Mind Bomb and Dusk, they sound like very well-crafted records. It's a different sound and it's a different approach. And Matt Johnson was very much an audiophile and the Mind Bomb won the first, I think it was the first George Martin 
engineering award. I mean, it's an amazing sounding thing. So that was like, oh, right, okay. We're spending three days on the drum sound. Right, okay. God, it was intense. And then we're working with Bernard Sumner, we're programming synths for days and days and days. He has that patience, I learned it. And that's why New Order's records sound better than the people who try and copy them. Because mm -hmm. he really gets in there and does it. So those things that I was doing, oh, I was, I was in seventh heaven. They're doing one of my favourite rock band. I was the guitar player. Bernard Sumner was my favourite electronic musician and I was a big New Order fan. We'd become partners. Yeah. Chrissy Hind kind of came, almost rescued me really psychologically and emotionally after the Smiths. If you're going to have someone pick you up and tell you what's what and give you a few good songs to play while you sort your head out, Chrissy Hind's as good as it gets really. And then I had Keith Richards stay up a few nights with me, laying the law down and giving me some really beautiful advice about staying true to yourself. And it was incredible. I was so lucky. Was he someone that you knew already? or No, I met him through Kirsty McCall, you know, and he, yeah. he, he checked me out. Mick Jagger had come and, you know, while, while I'm dropping big names, <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger had come to check the Smiths out first. Yeah, and I'd met Keith Richards through Kirsty and Steve, Kirsty McCall and Steve, Lily White, her husband. Steve was working with the Stones, and um, and that was amazing because he's an amazing fella. So that all happened after the Smiths, and then Paul McCartney called me to because he wanted to jam with me, and that was a, eight hours of Beatles songs and all rock and roll songs and everything. <laughs> that must have been extraordinary. I wasn't expecting any of that to happen when 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 the Smiths split, mm. or this, you know, just being still doing it, writing a new album and having a having an audience. So I think it's all worked out okay. You know, the narrative that people want to wallow in sometimes about breakups and fallouts and nastiness and all of that is unfortunate, but it's not stopped me doing my thing and it's never going to stop me doing my thing, really. I'm glad it all happened, you know. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcats, quartermasters, however you identify. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with myself and Johnny Marr. I'm very grateful indeed to him for his time. It was a really lovely day. Johnny came and picked me up from the station. Actually, if you're a hardcore listener to this podcast, 
then you may have listened to the Christmas special I did with Joe at the end of 2016, in which I detailed a confrontation I had with an employee at Euston Station about my bike, leaving my bike unattended when I was picking up my tickets. It was a shameful confrontation for me. (laughs) I did all the wrong things. Anyway, you can hear about that if you listen to that Christmas special with Joe. But um, that was the morning that I went to meet Johnny Marr. When I got to Stockport Station, Johnny came, picked me up, and drove me to his uh, studio, that old-school industrial building, large, concrete-floored spaces, brick walls, big windows. Um, It was a lovely place. In one room, he had all his guitars on racks. Over a 100 guitars were there, and he told me a little bit about some of them. In fact, we recorded... Uh, some rambles before we sat down for our proper conversation and once the uh, Adam Buxton app is properly up and running I will see if I can edit some of those uh, bits of chat and post them there beneath this uh, episode of the podcast as a kind of bonus I think that's the idea it's going to take a while for us to figure out exactly how the app works when it finally does emerge But the idea is that there will be, I hope, bits and pieces of bonus audio that will go along with uh, podcasts on occasion. Oh, it's the wise old tree. How are you, wise old tree? Yeah, all right, not too bad. Quite windy today, so I don't like that so much. What's your problem with the wind? What do you think the problem is? It blows all my arms and shit off, doesn't it? Yes, of course. I didn't think of that. No, you didn't. You look down there at that bloke across the way. That very old oak. Yeah, that's right, the old bloke. Last time it was windy, his arm broke off and it split right down the side, so, like, he's just got this massive gash down the side now. I assume that he'd been struck by lightning. No, it's wind. It's just wind. You get to a certain age and, like, a big gust comes along and that's it, your arm comes off and all your guts and shit fall out. Yes, I sympathise. I feel as if I'm reaching that age myself. But it must be nice feeling the wind through your leaves. Fuck off. Yes, all right. Sometimes I close my eyes and just imagine I'm moving at high speed down, well, anywhere really, just moving. Yes, I feel you. It's nice as well to get a breeze going through your acorns. Sure, who doesn't like a breeze through their acorns? Because then they can get blown off and distribute your seed far and wide. Okay, well, listen, lovely to speak to you again, wise old tree. Take care. I'll be all right. See ya. Right then, Rosie, we should head back. Thanks very much indeed. Once again to Johnny Marr. Thanks to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for production support, Matt Lamont for edit assistance, and thanks most especially to all of you, whoever you are, wherever you are. Thank you for downloading this podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. I went serious there. I was doing a kind of advertising voice, and then that seemed a little insincere because I genuinely do hope you enjoyed it. Take care. I love you. Bye!